Welcome to Burned by the Firewall, an Occamsec podcast. Hello and welcome to Burned by the Firewall. Today we are joined by John Kindervog, Zero Trust Creator and Guru. John, welcome to the show and thank you for being with us today. Hey, it's a pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. So, uh, so John, for those listeners who may not be in the know, can you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became the creator of Zero Trust? Oh, you know, it is a long, convoluted story, but I ended up after uh, a number of years as a network engineer and a security engineer over at a, a company called Forrester Research, which is a research firm. And, and so what you get to do is research about cool things. And, and through a whole bunch of circumstances, I ended up realizing that the trust model that we have in security is the real problem. So we need to get rid of it. So how much trust should we have? in anything on the network uh the answer is zero so we get zero trust and it's become just this overwhelming movement you know i went from a person at forrester who people laughed at and told me i was completely insane and now as of last week the president of the united states signed an executive order mandating that all u.s federal civilian agencies move towards a zero trust model so that's quite a journey. <laughs> yeah, it, it certainly is. Um, and, and zero trust has been a hot topic for, for sure. And we look forward to talking more about like your transition in, into that role uh, and some of the details behind it. But first, uh, as our dedicated listeners will, will know, we have a mandatory icebreaker question that we like to ask our guests. And so with that, I like to pick your brain and figure out what was your favorite piece of childhood technology? My well, so I'm way older than all the rest of you. So, you know, I had things like erector sets, uh, Lincoln logs, Yep. you know, that was my early childhood technology. The first thing that I ever used that could be called technology was the original Pong game. So if anybody knows about Pong, it was a very simple game. You hooked it up to your TV. It had to be a black and white TV because if you hooked it up to a color TV, you would blow the tube out and you had two little rotators and you played a game of ping pong or, you know, tennis or whatever. And you hit beep, 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 beep. And you went back and forth and two people could play it. And it was amazing, right? I had that for, I wish I still had it. It would be just such a piece of, of Americana and technology history, but uh, it was amazing. My friends would come over and we play pong. And uh, so that was the first piece of technology I ever touched that you could call anything near a computer. I guess we had ca calculators probably, uh, you know, those were invented already, but I still had to learn how to use a slide rule when I was in high school. So, you know, uh, I've seen the beginning uh, to uh, where we are now, and it's been a fascinating journey and it's moved really, really fast. Yeah, it certainly has. I mean, I think we may have to redub this section of the podcast back to the future because yeah, things things just move so fast and um, the 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 scale in which people talk about their childhood tech seems to vary quite quite a bit. So appreciate you sharing that response. And I think as it pertains to to zero trust and, and this being the topic of the podcast, really, John, with your expertise, it seems like that is a phrase, zero trust, right? That's that's kind of thrown around very freely and is very buzzwordy, if you will. So I guess from your perspective, what is the, the purest meaning of zero trust that everyone needs to know? So zero trust is the idea that trust 
that in a digital system is a human emotion, right? We've injected a human emotion into a digital system for no reason. And it causes fundamental problems because now we, we talk about trusted versus untrusted systems, trusted versus untrusted uh, users. And, and that mental view uh, causes us to allow bad things to happen. And so we just need to get rid of the idea of trust because it's not necessary in digital systems. There's no trust flag in TCP. It doesn't make a packet move around a network. And so what I tell people all the time, because I'm often accused of saying that people aren't trustworthy, and I will say, no, that's not true, right? I'm not talking about human beings. I'm saying uh, people are not packets. No person has ever been on a network, right? Michael and Devin, Devin and John are not on the network right now, right? We have not shrunken down into subatomic particles where we've been sent over the public internet to the Zoom server so that you can record this podcast. It rarely happens in movies, maybe Tron, Lawnmower Man, Wreck-It Ralph. Uh, but even in the Matrix, you got to plug in. So I'm just disconnecting uh, humanity from technology is really all I'm doing. And, and, and it's this anthropomorphization that is killing us. But even in the executive order that the president came out with, uh, they had a pretty good definition of zero trust. And so now we're going to see uh, the definition be more cohesive. And instead of every vendor trying to redefine zero trust based upon the limitations of their products. So, oh, all I can sell is multi-factor authentication. So zero trust has to be multi-factor authentication or all I have is a proxy. So zero trust is a proxy. Uh, that's changing because of this executive order. So I'm very pleased with what came out from there. And I'm even seeing a lot of movement in NIST and, and other uh, people who've been talking about it as specific technologies to say, hey, yeah, here's one way you could do it, right? And, and, and people have misunderstood things like NIST 800-207. And so they're, they're coming out publicly and saying, zero trust is a strategy, it's a framework. And, and if you have that framework and that strategy, then you can do some amazing things by eliminating trust. Fantastic. And I think, John, you and I discussed uh, before, um, there are, uh, as you say, like products, people are obviously using the word zero trust to sell products, to sell their, their ideals. Um, and it seems like there's a lot of misuse around the term right now. Um, so any myths or fables that you would like to de debunk for the folks while we have you here? Yeah, I mean, you know, first of all, zero trust isn't about making a system trusted. It's about eliminating the concept of trust. You know, I'll hear people say that all the time. You can, we're going to use zero trust to make this particular device trusted. No, 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 we're not going to do that. Uh, we're going to just eliminate trust. Secondly, that zero trust is all about identity. That's not true. And I can prove it with two words, Snowden, Manning. They were trusted users on trusted systems. They had the right, um, you know, anti-malware, antivirus, whatever, they had the right patch levels on their devices, they had robust identity systems, they had powerful multi-factor authentication and MFA stuff that is really hard to use, but there was no doubt about the asserted identity of those packets on the network, it's just that nobody looked at the packets post-authentication. And so we had consume identity into, uh, in, into zero trust environments, but it's not equal to zero trust, right? And then uh, people say zero trust is difficult. It's not. It's not complex. It's very simple if you, if you 
uh, use my methodology, which is a five-step methodology, because I've done a lot of this work and a lot of people are thinking about it theoretically or looking at it from the perspective of someone who's never done it. And so learn, learn from those of us who've had experience and you'll find that it's, it's not difficult at all. And so these are some of the myths that I'm trying to dispel. And there's probably a lot more of them, but, but that's the main, main things that you need to know. We're not trying to make systems trustworthy. This isn't just about identity uh, and it's not difficult. And so um, if you can wrap your mind around that, it, it's pretty easy to figure out how to de deploy it. I mean, do it in bite-sized chunks. Uh, don't think of it as binary. I mean, there's a lot of things that I could go on and on because I do, you know, big workshops for people and, and help them understand how to do it in their environment. But really, um, I created uh, during my time as a field as the field CTO at Palo Alto Networks, I created a lot of materials around that that can really help people understand that. And I'm continuing to create more and more uh, uh, information. So if you if you have a question, ask me, people ask me all the time. I'm easy to find. And I love to have these conversations. So if you if you if you have questions, you know, reach out to me through LinkedIn or, or Twitter or something. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk, we'll get on a zoom and, and we'll, we'll talk about whatever your concerns are. So john, I know, from my perspective, in talking with some clients and potential clients, uh, specifically in like the, the like the small and medium sized businesses, there, there is a lot of not fear, but you know, they, they don't know what they don't know per se. And they, they think that this is going to be a very costly and, and tough transition to, to make to, to zero trust. So if, if you could, if I could piggyback off your last response, could you maybe tell our listeners a little bit more about the, that five-step methodology that you have in, in one, one answer? And then in the second answer, uh, from a, from a scale perspective, you know, it seems like zero trust is sort of like scale free, right? Can you give us a sense of the costs that go into setting up a, a basic zero trust program? So if we look at the five-step methodology, the first thing we're going to do is define a protect surface. We're going to ask the question, what do we need to protect? And so instead of focusing on the attack surface, which is the entire internet, right, which is massive and constantly growing, I focus on it, the inversion of that, which is the protect surface. What do I need to protect? So I can shrink the attack surface down orders of magnitude to something very small and easily known. That's called a protect surface. Inside of a protect surface, you put what's called a DAS element, and you put a single DAS element. So DAS is an acronym to help you easily remember what to put in there. So the D stands for data. Then the first A is applications. Then the second A is assets. And then the S is services, services like DNS, DHCP, Active Directory. And so, uh, you know, it's designed to be very data centric, but sometimes you need to protect an asset like uh, a PLC in a manufacturing plant or whatever it is. So you take a single DAS element, you put it inside of a single protect surface, you define a micro perimeter around it in policy. That's what we're trying to accomplish. So the first step is defining that protect surface. If you do not know what you're going to protect, you will always fail. The second step is to map the transaction flows. How does the system work together as a system? We have to know that or we can't actually build the system, right? And so once you understand that, that's when you architect 
the controls, architect the zero trust environment. Too many people start with like, here's the reference architecture that we've built. You fit your stuff into it. But zero trust is bespoke. I can say bespoke because uh, Davin's on the call and he's British and he understands that word bespoke. But in the US, I say tailor-made, right? It's tailor-made for each protect surface. And then from there, we uh, the fourth step is create the policy. Ultimately, Zero Trust is a layer seven policy statement. And I'm trying to put layer seven controls in the correct places. And then the fifth step is monitor and maintain. And this gives us telemetry and insight so that we can refine each of the other four steps and create an anti-fragile system. So if you're familiar with the concept of anti-fragility that Taleb came out with, uh, this, this gives me vocabulary to talk about what I've been trying to do, create uh, an environment that gets stronger and stronger under load. And so if you understand those five steps, think of it as an algebraic equation. There is a variable X, that's the protect surface. So you just solve for X for one protect surface, one DAS element, and then you do it over and over again. So it becomes incremental, iterative, and non-disruptive. And, and so how much does it cost? Well, it's each each different protect surface is going to be have a variable cost to it. So you know, the first one you might do might be $0 because you're changing the policy on a next generation firewall, which serves a, as what's called a segmentation gateway in zero trust terms. So it segments the network based upon users applications or data so you might say oh i've got the right control in place but i'm running it like a traditional layer three uh packet filtering firewall or a staple firewall and so i'm going to upgrade it to an application-based firewall and and make it function as a segmentation gateway so i'm going to change the policy so that's either free because of that's just overhead right the person who's going to do that or there might be some incremental cost if you're having a managed service do it or whatever. And, uh, oh, if you use our managed service, that's just free in the monthly charge. So you get you know, just a little plug there. Uh, but uh, so, so, so it may be very inexpensive. It could be um, pretty expensive if you've got a really complex system that you have to protect, like a big banking application that's got a whole bunch of different contingencies to it and you need to add a number of technologies because you've got no protection on it. I mean, some of these big data breaches happen because nobody is protecting the important things like source code. I mean, I had one CEO who called me up and he said, uh, hey, we just accidentally <laughs> listen to this. We just accidentally caught somebody ex uh, stealing our source code. And I asked the security people, why aren't we protecting the source code? And they're like, well, no, we, we have antivirus on the machines. That's where you do security. And he's like, no, you don't understand it. Uh, our entire revenue, 100% of our revenue comes from our product, which is this source code. And why isn't that the thing we're protecting? So we often are protecting the wrong things. And so uh, if, if you have that kind of problem, then that's going to be a more substantial and costly and longer problem but you can break it down into these incremental place uh incremental bits these small problems instead of one large problem you break it down into small solvable problems and then you can say for protecting the source code and the devops environment and, and getting the right thing that's going to take x amount of time put a project plan together and then figure out how much it's going to cost and now you know for that one project you know 
the amount of time, the amount of labor, the, the amount of cost. And so that's how you break zero trust down into small bite-sized pieces. Wow. And on that note, are there any real-world uh, zero trust rollouts that you can talk about, obviously, because you might be under NDA, that come to mind where deployment has been an obvious benefit beyond uh, that which a normal security program uh, would protect against? Yeah. Uh, uh, right as I was leaving Palo Alto Networks, uh, there was a case study done with uh, uh, Barrett Steel, I think, in the UK. Uh, and they talk a lot about that. And then uh, I did a I did a speech with uh, Domin Shipyards out of the Netherlands in Barcelona, and they talked about that, too. So there are a few case studies. That's probably the hardest thing to do. Uh, it's quite common for me to to find somebody, you know, the the team who did it, they really want to talk about it. And so, yeah, we're going to do a, a case study together or we're going to get on a, a we're going to do a speech together or something. And then at the last minute, their PR team or their legal team comes out and says, no, you can't talk about zero trust. So zero trust is a lot like Fight Club. You guys seen the movie Fight Club, right? I am, I am Tyler Durden. And so what's the first rule of Fight Club, Great Michael? Movie. You don't talk about Fight Club. Right. So that's the problem with zero trust. The same rule seems to apply. Although I have had people, uh, you know, in the government. I mean, certainly the government is talking about it now, right? There's an executive order about it. So it's not like uh, that didn't come out of nowhere. It's not like somebody, hey, here, let's just pick an idea out of the air and, and have the president sign an executive order about it, right? Uh, both both DISA and NSA have released guidance in the past two weeks on this. Uh, so it's all over the U.S. federal government. Now, will they talk about particular case studies yet? No, but you should be able to read between the lines when you read, you know, President Joseph Biden at the bottom of that uh, document. Uh, but hopefully that will change because as as one person who is is, you know, some is a big expert in this. He said to me, look, tell your clients that that attackers don't attack well-defended networks. Why is that? Because it reduces their return on investment. Why would you attack a well-defended zero-trust network when there's low-hanging fruit that you can do something to uh, and make money? Because this is, a for most of them, it's about making money, right? right. And ransomware is about making money. So when this latest set of ransomware came out, I had a bunch of messages from from customers who were doing zero trust and sending me screenshots of of their logs and showing how uh, their zero trust policy had stopped the command and control of the ransomware um, malware. Because in, remember, in order for ransomware to be successful, not only does it have to get dropped on, on some sort of asset. And then it has to execute. So there's a place where you can stop both the drop and the execution of the malware. But let's say you haven't done that. The next thing the malware has to do is call outbound to a command and control channel uh, to set up the CNC so that it can receive the symmetric key exchange, right? And this is, if you want to talk about being burned by the firewall, this is really where zero trust comes from. It comes from the fact that at the turn of the century, I'm installing old Cisco PIX firewalls, and they have a thing called the ASA, the Adaptive Security Algorithm. And if you've never installed one of those, 
you may not know this, but the adaptive security algorithm, the first thing that you had to do was assign a trust level to an interface. And so you would assign for the internal interface, the highest trust level, which was 100. And then you had the lowest interface, the lowest trust level, which was the internet, which was zero. And then every DMZ that you would assign, you had to assign a number between one and 99 because you couldn't have two interfaces that had the same trust level or else you couldn't pass traffic. And then if you had those trust levels figured out, then you never had to write a policy statement, an outbound rule from the, the high trust level to the low trust level. It automatically allowed that to go outbound, but it didn't allow anything to come inbound because that's all anybody was worried about. And when I was installing those and when I had to go get my certifications and stuff, I would just be livid on there. We have to have outbound rules, right? No, no, we don't. That's just not how the model works. And I'm like, yeah, but we, we automatically allow everything to go out. That makes no sense. This is how data exfiltration happens. And for years, nobody listened to me. But if you have granular zero trust policy, there is no rule for a piece of malware to make an outbound call to a command and control server. That rule just doesn't exist, right? So from a policy statement, this is where the magic is. I had a, I had a customer uh, do a pen test. And uh, uh, he had his zero trust environment. Remember, not everything is going to be zero trust. So he had this one zero trust environment that they had built pen tested and the pen tester couldn't get in. And you guys, you guys are do some pen testing too, right? Yeah. So you, yep. I'm talking your language here and you know, as I'm a former pen tester, not, I wasn't a very good one. I was probably a decent manager of pen testers, but I was only an adequate pen tester, which is why I got into other sides of it. Uh, but you could always get in, right? I mean, I helped Jason Ostrom with VoIP Hopper and and, uh, and and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, did some cool stuff. But, but in this case, the pen tester could not get into the network. And so he complained to the CISO. He said, okay, I'm going to need domain credentials to do the pen test. Sure, I'm going to give you domain credentials. And so he gave him domain credentials and there was no rule assigned to that credential. So he couldn't do anything. Right. And so he starts complaining to the CISO, Hey, are you trying to make me look bad? And the CISO goes, yes, yes, I am. That's my job to make you look bad. Right. Because in the traditional trust model, once you had domain credentials, you could go anywhere. Right. You guys know this, right. the network's flat. I can go anywhere. I can do anything. And in a zero trust environment, have the domain credential. I don't care because there's no rule assigned for you to do anything. And then what we do is we start asking the domain, the credential for Michael, we say, what assets should Michael have access to? And we give that very granular control instead of opening up everything and then trying to play whack-a-mole if you start doing bad things. So it's just an inversion of the way we always built policy. Yes, uh, very interesting. Uh, I was actually involved in an environment which had a, an ASA and uh, it was plugged in but not configured in any way, uh, which echoes your point on, on policies. Yeah, you're not really burned by the firewall. You're burned by the misconfiguration of the firewall or you're burned <laughs> by the policy engine of the firewall, right? So yeah, we got to have controls yep. in place. 
that understand what's going on, but we have to have people who write policy to meet those controls. And we have to understand that we can put policy in, but we should take policy out, right? There's always a change control rule to put policy in, but nobody rarely anyway, you know, says this rule expires in six months, you know, or two weeks or whatever, or, or constantly looks and says, what policies don't we use? Cause that's what the attackers are doing. What, what policy doesn't nobody use anymore, but it's still there. And look, I got in. And so this is about being very granular about who should have access to what, uh, for what purpose and, and under what criteria. That's what I call the Kipling method, right? If you've read about that, it's um, who, what, when, where, why, and how. Rudyard Kipling created that idea in a poem. Yeah. And, uh, and people are starting to understand that. But if you have that methodology, that's an easy cross-cultural way for you to write policy that anybody can understand and audit, right? The other thing about zero trust environments is they're easy to audit. Auditors love them uh, because they understand it. They have policy that's readable by real human beings. And uh, there's a lot of the controls uh, that, that, that they have from an audit perspective just built into the system because it's, it's not hierarchical. It's based upon putting the control near the thing you're trying to protect. Yeah, I think uh, quite often see a lot of set and forget, which, um, you know, you go, how old is this policy? Oh, it was about 10 years ago we did that. <laughs> okay, right. fair enough. Uh, yeah. I'm sure it's still so, good. <laughs> yeah, it still works, right? Uh, so I guess uh, we, we can't leave this conversation without bringing up the uh, the colonial pipeline attack uh, because it's recently happened. Um, so do you, do you have any thoughts on that and the environment they might have been using? Yeah, I mean, I'm... I don't know enough about that other than what I have read in, and, and so it's always, you know, I, I don't want to say anything on that, that, I, that, that I don't have real firsthand knowledge on, but I can say that I've seen other things like that. And, you know, when you look at the systems that are being run in, in these OT environments, uh, and in these critical infrastructure environments, they're typically running across TCP IP. They're running across the IT network, but there's a thought that they're OT operational technology. And so somehow they're more safe and that's not true. And so uh, I, I do a lot of work on putting zero trust environments in critical infrastructure, in OT environments, um, and, 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 you know, we have a lot of old thinking in those environments. You know, there's this thing called the Purdue model, if you're familiar with that. And that was designed in the late 80s before there was, you know, Ethernet, before was, there was the Internet, really. And so we need to, to move our thinking away from those old models into the way people actually attack those environments. And, uh, and so it's possible to stop those attacks from being successful. And what I mean there is it's never possible to stop the attacker from launching an attack. The only thing that's stopping the attacker from launching the attack is their will to attack you, right? They have the capability to attack you. They have the tools and the techniques. They have the proximity to you because they're connected to the internet. And so if they decide to attack you, they're going to attack you. Now, will the attack be successful? That becomes 
the question. And the answer is related to, are you protecting the thing that they're attacking, right? If all you're protecting is this perimeter uh, in, a, in a pretty, I don't know, open way, then they're going to get access to the thing that they want to get access to. And that's what you need to think about. What did they, what did they do in Colonial Pipeline? There's just so much different views on that, that, that I can't really piece it all together yet. But, but in similar kinds of things, um, you know, you, you've seen them attack uh, the controller that controls the instrumentation that turns the valves on and off, for example. I've seen other pipeline attacks like that. Uh, so what do you want to protect? You want to protect the thing that keeps the pipeline working, right? So it's probably some sort of controller, some sort of PLC or something that, uh, that, that uses a particular protocol that is well known that you can say only a certain uh, group of users can access that PLC across this protocol and that's it. And so now you've really limited that by creating a protect surface. And so there's very few attack vectors that they could even attack. And so again, it comes down to policy. And I would say probably in that attack, the policy was way too open and, uh, and to really 20th century. We're in the, you know, we're 21 years into the 21st century. And yet most people are still doing cybersecurity like it was the 20th century. And that is the thing to me that is just not really acceptable. Yeah, I think it reminds me of the Florida water attack. Um, you know, again, rem I think it's like remote access uh, on outdated systems uh, that just shouldn't have been shouldn't have been publicly available or, or accessible. Yeah, I mean, there's so much. One of my favorites is in Finland uh, a few years ago. Uh, somebody attacked their power grid, and uh, so suddenly people in Finland in the middle of winter don't have heat. And the way they mitigated that was they unplugged the grid from the internet, right? So sometimes you ask, why does this thing have connectivity to something? Uh, you know, we, we've, we've made somehow the internet is this magical thing, and there's probably things that shouldn't be connected to the internet, but that doesn't always stop everything, right? I mean, let's, let's face it, Snowden and Manning exfiltrated it to WikiLeaks across an air gap network. So there's ways yep. to get it done. Uh, but there was a huge amount of friction in that. And, and had anybody been monitoring what was happening, they would have, they would have caught those uh, individuals before the damage was done. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think also on, a, on a more personal note, for obviously a very, a very long and very career, is there one thing that you've learned during that that um, you want to pass on to our listeners? Yeah, I mean, that you always have to learn. I always say I have six months experience in cybersecurity because the only thing that matters is the last six months and the next six months. Right. And so uh, a lot of the things that I did in the past are, you know, can be interesting war stories, but they're not relevant to what I need to do in the future. So I'm always learning. I'm always reaching out to experts in the field. I mean, I talk to people who are experts in identity or encryption or some other thing that, that I don't know about. And I'm always engaging with other people who are doing work in zero trust to find out what their opinions are. What have they been seeing? So it's about creating community and, and not 
thinking that you know everything because you don't, whoever you are, right? Bill Joy, there's a famous thing called Bill Joy's Law. And, uh, and Bill Joy, one of the co-founders of Sun said, uh, uh, no matter who you are, what company you are, most of the smartest people in the world work for somebody else. But in cybersecurity, sometimes we have this view that you're trying to prove how good you are, especially as a hacker, a pen tester, all that kind of stuff, you know, and there's there's a lot of affirmations people get from that. But I think collaboration is more important. You can get a lot more joy from this business if you can make a lot of friends and collaborate and, and talk about stuff. Just this morning, I had breakfast with Chase Cunningham, who's known as Dr. Zero Trust and and Rick Holland uh, over at Digital Shadows. All three of us were analysts together at Forrester uh and or, or we were all analysts at Forrester Chase was a little bit after after us but we're all friends we've known each other for a long time and we're just talking about all this stuff and that's what i encourage is these these ways to communicate with people and and then you know ask questions sometimes people say well i'm not sure if this is a good question to ask yeah it's a good question if you don't i ask this all the time i you know somebody will say something and i'll say what does that mean to you because we have so many things that mean different things to different people so what does that mean to you help me understand your perspective on it and then maybe i can give you my perspective on it uh or or maybe i can learn something from you but always be be willing to ask those questions right because that's how we learn. And this is a business, as Dan Gear says, cybersecurity is the most intellectually challenging business in the world because it's adversarial, right? We have adversaries. We don't have competitors. We have adversaries and they're constantly trying to outthink us. And so it's that game that makes it so much fun. And cybersecurity is a really fun business to be in if you have that perspective on it. And there's such a need for people who are inquisitive and creative and 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 want to do the right things and are concerned about some of the other topics that are certainly interrelated to cybersecurity like privacy and so our entire future as humanity is kind of tied up in our business we are the epicenter of of uh of of you know the future of humanity in in many ways so Think about it in, in that perspective and, and don't get hung up in the past. Uh, think about the future. Don't blame somebody for something bad that happens. Think about how that can be fixed and uh, then collaborate uh, with, with people, you know, as you, as, as you can. Right. Uh, I, I try, I usually travel a lot. Uh, some guy reached out to me in, on LinkedIn. He was in uh, Dublin. I happened to be in Dublin that next Saturday. Yeah, meet me, meet me for breakfast, right? Do those kinds of things. Uh, you'll get to meet some of the most fascinating people in the world. You know, that's how I met uh, Dan Kaminsky, who we lost, and I got to be got to know him pretty well. That's how I met, uh, you know, I went up to uh, um, Whit Diffie, the creator of the Diffie Hellman algorithm at an event, and just said, Hey, man, I just admire you. And I just wanted to meet you and just tell you that I admire you. And he said, Hey, what are you doing for lunch? Right? And so I get to have lunch with Whit Diffie, just because I, I, I managed to get the courage to go up and talk to him. And so we are in a business where people love to share and and talk about these things, and take advantage of that, that is an incredibly long winded answer for something that should have been 
pretty short. Yeah, John, I think I think sure it was long winded, but I think it was it was very well thought out in that you know. It, Something that we see at Occamsec, something that I've noticed in this industry is as we are trying to defend against the adversarial mindset, uh, diversity of thought obviously is, is a huge um, strength for, for teams that are trying to do that because if everyone's thinking the same, I mean, we would never have zero trust. Again, if you weren't thinking differently, there's a great example of you know what to do in the career is, is to question things and think differently and look for uh, different solutions that are out there. And that, that requires connection with people, which you're talking about, and collaboration with people, which I think, especially over the last year, has been very difficult. So as we sort of shake off uh, you know, what, what these, these past 12 to 15 months have, have been for us and get back to normal. I think this is a great opportunity for people in every industry, especially cyber to begin to connect and collaborate again, to your point, build those relationships and continue to explore new and differing thought. Um, and I think with that in mind, as we start to draw to an end here at the podcast episode with you, John, um, I want to give you the floor in case there's anything that you want to get out uh, to our listeners, anything cool that you're working on that you haven't touched on already, or just anything that you want to share uh, in general at this point in time. Well, you know, I think I think people are, have noticed that we are working against a very sophisticated adversary. And for a long time in cybersecurity, we were sort of dismissive. We had terms like script kitties and things like that. And that isn't what's happening anymore. We, we have adversaries who have probably PhDs in computer science and can create exploit code on the fly and have created malware toolkits so everything looks like a zero day. And they're very creative and very good at what they do. And so we're going to have to up, up our game and we're going to have to think more creatively and uh, don't be afraid to do that. I, I, that. That's what I would say is we create a lot of, of culture of fear fear of doing the right thing. Uh, we're so afraid of doing, you know, of, of blocking a good thing, you know, having a false positive that will allow a lot of bad things to come into our environment. So if you can do anything in your company, your organization, your agency, you know, your department, whatever, create a feeling of openness where, where you won't get, you won't blame people for things, especially uh, oh, you stopped that important email going to the president. Well, I'm sorry he had to wait five minutes while we figured out what was going on. If you can't do that, you know, you can't live in the modern world. So um, create a culture where people can question that. Uh, because if you if you don't do that, everybody's going to be afraid to do the right thing. Yeah, I I agree wholeheartedly. I think you, you hit the nail on the head. It's 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 very easy to fall into a trap in a company, especially if you're a leader where, again, you don't give people that uh, sort of flat organization structure where everyone has a say, everyone can question, everyone can push back, right? And I think when, when you lose that ability, again, then you lose that diversity of thought and you become a yes man. And again, you, you lose some of that advantage that you have uh, against the adversary. So I think that's a great point, John. Um, and I guess in, in closing, 
we really appreciate you taking time to join us today. Uh, it, it was great to have this opportunity to speak with you and learn about Zero Trust and, and your insights and your efforts uh, in this. Since again, you are the, the godfather, if you will, of Zero Trust. And so to, to all our listeners uh, as well, thank you for joining us uh, on this episode. And we look forward to seeing you next time on Burned by the Firewall. Mm-hmm.